You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is a world famous comedy theater and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance and the same practices that have made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage at work, at home and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard. Vice President of Creative Strategy, Innovation, and Business Development at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, discovering connections, and building a better future. This is Getting the Yes And. My guest today on the podcast is Ha Jun Chang, who is a professor of economics at SOAS University of London. His books include Economics, The User's Guide, Bad Samaritans, and 23 Things They Don't Tell You About Capitalism, which was an international bestseller. And his new book is called Edible Economics, A Hungry Economist Explains the World. I think you're going to enjoy this podcast. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow is just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch the tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops hajun chang welcome to the show hi thank you for having me this is such a unique book in that each chapter uses a specific food to illustrate an economic principle and before we talk about why and how you came <laughs> to write this book I want our audience to get a specific idea of how this conceit kind of actually works. Yeah. In chapter 13, you talk about chili, and mm-hmm. you illustrate this through a meal you had in London with your friend Duncan Green. Can you right. start us off by talking about that dinner and how that leads to a discussion of the economics of caregiving? Yeah. Um, you know, the, the world is kind of divided into two spheres at the, in terms of chili eating. So there's uh, what I call the chili belt, uh, starting with Mexico, where the the, uh, fruit uh, originates, and uh, going across uh, mainly hot zones, uh, West Africa, South India, uh, Southeast Asia, Sichuan in Chile, uh, South Korea, my native country is a bit of an odd one out uh, there, because it's a pretty far up north, but uh, it uh, uses uh, quite a lot of chili. Now, restaurants are serving foods uh, from those uh, regions uh, in countries where chili is not part of the normal diet. uh, To be careful with that, uh, how they serve their customers, because uh, some people really cannot take chili. So that... uh, Spontaneously, these uh, restaurants have uh, evolved uh, this system of uh, the chili the, the denotation, if you like. Uh, so there are dishes with no chili next to it, one chili, two chilies, maybe three chilies. So the, the people in Britain, the, the parts of the U.S., uh, Europe, uh, they are used to it. Now, one day I took uh, my uh, British friend, uh, Duncan Green, to Sichuan restaurant uh, in London, and this restaurant, uh, to Duncan's uh, shock, had uh, up to five chilies in their system. 
So he got scared uh, by looking at the menu. But I told him, look, at, uh, you are in this uh, place uh, which is uh, the serving food, famous for using tons of chilies. Uh, you know, you have to uh, try them. So I uh, told him, uh, okay, I'm not going to order anything with uh, five chilies. Uh, let's uh, try it, uh, some things with uh, three, maybe four chilies. And he kind of uh, grunted and uh, agreed. But in the last minute, he said, can I take an insurance? Can I order one dish without any chili? So I said, yeah, go ahead. Uh, mm-hmm. If uh, you cannot handle the rest, that uh, you can uh, at least eat that. And... Yeah, when the, the, the dishes are delivered, I mean, there's this uh, tiny that, uh, plate of uh, some vegetable dish, uh, which is what he ordered, but had uh, six pinky-sized chilies uh, <laughs> spread across the dish. And Duncan freaked out and uh, called the waitress and said, look, there must be a mistake. I ordered uh, no chili dish and uh, this has uh, six chilies. The wait- waitress that uh, looked at it and said, oh, no, it's uh, the right dish. And he said, how come? But the menu said that it doesn't have any chili. And then the waitress said, oh, you know, the, the, the chilies in the menu, they are just indication of how hot they are. It doesn't necessarily mean that uh, there is no chili, uh, even if uh, there is no chili uh, next to the dish's name, because uh, there is no dish in the Suchan food which has no chili. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Duncan had to uh, fish out the chilies that uh, he uh, yeah, still has some problem with those uh, the, but uh, you know this has a uh, happy ending because uh, the, he uh, still liked the food uh, even though he found them uh, too hot uh, and then he kept going back to the restaurant now he's uh, very good at eating uh, the spicy hot food so the, you know the, this uh, the happy ending to that the story but yeah, this uh, illustrates uh, when something is uh, ubiquitous, we take it for granted. Mm-hmm. And when we take something for granted, we don't even uh, count it. So the, in economics, uh, the, the best example of uh, that, uh, that is uh, unpaid household work and care work that is uh, done in families and communities, mostly by women. You know, this uh, the, the work is uh, actually quite substantial, you know, the, the, depending on how you estimate it. Uh, people the, come up with figures like 30% of GDP, 40% of GDP, but it's not uh, included in the GDP you know, because uh, GDP counts only things that are transacted in the market. So, you know, the, 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 just uh, do a little the thought experiment. The two mothers swap their kids and then they that, uh, pay each other for the, the babysitting service. And uh, suddenly, that, uh, they are adding to the GDP. Right? Or even better, that, that they can raise their the respective wages by 10 times. You know? And that, that they'll add hugely to GDP, but that, that their financial situations are the same. You know? So that, that we have this uh, absurd uh, situation where this uh, care work, which is, I mean, without which uh, that we cannot survive. No, there is no there yeah. is no civilization. Exactly. Without yeah, there is no economy without no economy. Uh, uh, care work. Yeah. But uh, uh, we don't even count it. Uh, so, mm. uh, well, this is uh, partly because uh, of uh, the, the 
sexist uh, bias, but uh, it's also because that, that in the current uh, way of uh, thinking about economics, we do not count things that are not transacted in the market. Yeah? And uh, we saw that uh, also during the pandemic that uh, even paid care work is poorly paid. Yeah? Right. So that during the pandemic, uh, the, the U.S. government designated uh, people like uh, medical doctors and nurses and uh, the people working at the old people's home as uh, the essential employees. In Britain, they were called key workers. Mm-hmm. And we uh, called them heroes. Uh, we, we said that, 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 that thank you to them. But then that, uh, people then realized that uh, almost everyone in the category, except uh, for top medical doctors, are actually poorly paid. So that, that this is because in the market, it's uh, one dollar, one vote, not one person, one vote. And therefore, okay. I mean, even if it's uh, something that uh, people desperately need, like, uh, you know, the protective equipment for the medical staff, you know, uh, more the care workers in the old people's home, these were not uh, provided and uh, the, the, literally millions of people died uh, because of that. Whereas uh, that uh, some billionaires were having their own space race, you know, shooting rockets. And yeah, so the, we have uh, the, at one level said that, you know, the, the nurses, the teachers, you know, the, the People working in the old people's home, they are essential. And then they, the essential people are uh, being paid uh, badly, but non-essential things like uh, the, the, uh, shooting rockets or right. the, the, yeah, the getting a lot of resources. So this uh, shows that uh, if we leave everything uh, to the market to be decided in terms of it, uh, their values, uh, so if it... Uh, let uh, the market uh, decide uh, the value of everything, then uh, we are actually uh, getting uh, the the balance wrong in the society because uh, there are essential things uh, like uh, the care work, paid or unpaid, and a bit more broadly, uh, what the economists call reproductive uh, labor, you know, that uh, people, say, growing food, uh, the selling food, delivering food, you know, the, the firefighters, you know, the people that, that do maintenance work on infrastructure, you know, the society cannot uh, reproduce itself uh, without these people. But uh, these people are, uh, according to the logic of the market, uh, very poorly paid, whereas people who are doing, you know, the less essential things that uh, let's face it, like uh, university professors like myself and you know, investment bankers. I mean, that the, the society can survive without them. Yeah, yeah. I, it's interesting because I t- two thoughts, sort of uh, uh, both reading this and then talking now. One mm-hmm. is this problem is just going to get worse because, in terms of the aging populations, you're going to have those people who Absolutely, are yeah. needing to care for children and for parents at the same time. And you have this gray tsunami happening, as the guy with the gray hair is is saying. Uh, and then, and then the other thing is, and we have done a lot of work in the caregiving space um, with our friends at a group called Caring Cross Generations mm-hmm. here in the states. Mm-hmm. And part part of what they're what they're doing is sort of saying, you know, our storytelling has been bad around this. And this is exactly mm-hmm. what you are doing, which is the thing mm-hmm. I appreciate about this book, which is 
people tend to, when you hear economics, there is a wide swath of uh, humanity that is just going to sort of wash over and and not necessarily be interested. But when you place this inside a story, and in particular, you recognizing for a lot of us, you, mm. me, and others, which is like, I love food. I love the story <laughs> of food. I love, you know, I, I love our fiascos with food. Every, you know, yeah. you talk about this as well. And I think that's why the chili thing is so funny, but yeah. also poignant because it is, and it's funny, you you say in the, uh, in uh, this, this thing, when you talk about the Scoville scale about the hottest, <laughs> the hotness of chili is not really a taste, but a pain. That's right. Oh, man, I, I love that because it's like, yeah. And for some people that, that is that, that's our experience, but also underneath when you talk about it, there's like, no, this is a real issue that we ignore at our peril. And, and I, I feel like yeah. that is kind of a line through almost every story inside the book. Mm-mm-mm. Yeah, I mean, that, that's uh, really great uh, that uh, you are that, uh, seeing this uh, book in that way, because, uh, yeah, that's exactly what I wanted. You know, I mean, I am of the view that... Uh, Democracy's uh, meaningless uh, in the capitalist society, unless uh, everyone knows some economics. You know, because uh, so many things uh, in our lives are well, almost everything is uh, bound up in the monetary consideration, in the, the economic, uh, the, the in the language of economic efficiency and so on. Yeah. yeah. So you know. I mean, it's not just uh, our jobs and pensions and uh, inflation rate, but, you know, things like, uh, you know, I mean, you, you have uh, the monetary consideration is there, even if uh, the, the, you are talking about the teaching of ancient languages in universities, you know, funding of museum. You know, in uh, Britain, I very frequently that, uh, come across people who try to defend the monarchy in terms of the tourist revenue that it generates, you know, what a demeaning uh, way of uh, justifying an institution that uh, they believe uh, to be at the foundation of their society. I mean, uh, maybe I can say that because I'm an anti-monarchist, you know, maybe I can say that uh, I am against the monarchy, but at least it uh, brings money in. But uh, if you're a monarchist, you know, is that uh, something that you uh, cannot, and shouldn't uh, justify in terms of uh, the monetary value. Yeah? So yeah. it's uh, come to that. So that in that kind of society, if uh, people don't know economics, uh, you know, that they, uh, what are they voting for? You know, I uh, still remember in 2000 U.S. election, a lot of uh, Americans voted for George W. Bush, uh, who now looks like an elder statesman, thanks to that uh, a certain mm-hmm. yeah, the later president, uh, you know, uh, a certain orange character who ended That's up right, as yeah. president of this country, yeah. Yeah, a lot of uh, people voting for George W. Bush are uh, saying that uh, he looks like someone I could have a beer with, you know. You know, on that account, you know, I can be the president of the USA. That, uh, you know, I'm, uh, happy <laughs> I have a beer have with you with if you want to be president, yeah. yeah. What a way to that, uh, elect someone to the most powerful office, uh, political office in the world, you know. So I, I really believe that uh, we need to fight against uh, this uh, economic illiteracy, but, uh, you know, admittedly, uh, even uh, the, for me, the economics is uh, very often uh, dry, boring, you know, and and uh, I, I understand why people uh, don't uh, necessarily want to uh, read about it, so this is my uh, trick, you know, that uh, mm-hmm. I give them uh, food stories, and before they know it, I morph it into an economic story. Yeah, you do. You know, 
Yeah, so in a way, uh, my food stories are a bit like uh, the the ice cream that some of your mothers might have offered uh, when she was uh, trying to encourage you to eat uh, your greens. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's a bribe, yeah. But yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. my bribe is uh, better than your mom's bribe because uh, the, in my book, uh, the ice cream comes first and greens come later. Yeah? Mm. So if you don't like uh, that, uh, to eat the greens, uh, that you can't uh, just uh, read the food stories and uh, be done with it. Although I think that, that uh, that's hopefully not what people are doing. Yeah. That. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to talk too, because um, I first visited the UK in the mid eighties with a traveling soccer team, uh, football oh. team. Uh, and uh, I distinctly remember landing in London. And I think, I think what we called every restaurant we went to was Mc, McBlandy McBlandalots because it <laughs> was so bland. <laughs> And the same with Scotland soon after when we were there. I'm like, yeah, oh no, no, I mean, and of course that has changed completely, but this was very similar to you because you landed also in Cambridge yeah. in the eighties, right? And you're yeah, coming 1986. From, yeah. Yeah. And, so and I, before, Korea. Yeah, coming, yeah. Right. T- tell us a little bit about your yeah, food yeah. culture and then coming into this, whatever. It was. Right, yeah. Yeah. Korean food is, uh, you know, at the time when I was growing up in Korea, we actually had a very few kind of, uh, Restaurants are uh, serving foreign food other than the Japanese and Chinese. I mean, there were a few heavily Americanized uh, French restaurants, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, the, uh, a few kind of uh, the Italian restaurants. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and quite a few uh, restaurants are serving what. Uh, we used to call light Western, which is basically Japanized uh, uh, European food, you know, like uh, schnitzels that are made with uh, pork, uh, which is mm-hmm. uh, in the uh, Japanese uh, tonkatsu, you know, and uh, you know, the other kind of uh, pale imitations of uh, European food. So we, I had uh, very little experience with uh, the, uh, different foods, but at least uh, the things that were sold were tasty. Yeah? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, we, we had uh, a lot of garlic, chili, you know, exciting uh, ingredients. Yeah? So uh, when I came to England, I couldn't believe uh, how bad food could taste. You know, everything <laughs> was uh, the, kind of, uh, the roasted until they are dry and right. uh, the, the too tough uh, to eat and no, there were vegetables that, 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 by the looks of it, one's carrot, the other's uh, spinach. But when you taste them, they taste the same because they're mm-hmm. both uh, boiled to death mm-hmm. yeah? and uh, the seasoned uh, only with uh, a little bit of salt. Yeah? And that, that my nightmare was that there was this uh, pizza restaurant chain that, uh, well, now gone, that, thankfully, called Pizza Land, which uh, gave its uh, customers uh, an option to have their pizzas uh, topped with a baked potato. Oh. <laughs> they were worried that uh, the customers would uh, be traumatized by foreign food like pizza. Yeah, you know, so cheese and tomato a... sauce is going to throw them off. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So that, it was a complete nightmare. But yeah, uh, interestingly, uh, now it's uh, completely different. I mean, you can... Right. Yeah, anything, you know, the, the Korean food, Polish food, you know, mm-hmm. Turkish food, you name it. I mean, the other day I was at the passing by a food court uh, in London and they were selling Uzbek dumplings. You know, I didn't know that the Uzbekistan, that the people in Uzbekistan eat the dumplings, you know. Yeah. 
That's, that's then, actually so, a fairly remarkable. If, actually, if you think about this, that is a fairly short time to go from, I mean, really, truly awful yeah, yeah, system yeah. to being what I would say is probably a world-class food city. Top, yeah. top 20 in terms of yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 So my theory is that uh, sometime in the late 1990s, the British people had an epiphany, collective epiphany. This and, has to change. Uh, decided that, yeah, that, uh, their food sucks, Yeah. And once they did that, it uh, opened uh, uh, the unlimited horizon. Because once you give give up your own food, you know, why should you prefer Mexican over Korean or uh, prefer Indian over Italian? You know, I do, if we could only figure out what happened in the '90s to spur that, we might be able to change much bigger things. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know what that is. Uh, all right. So let's dig into some of these chapters. Um, I was really interested in the okra chapter and i have mm. to say all right chicagoan who i helped run an initiative for four years at the university of chicago Mm-mm. this podcast um i think is in many ways set up to smear the name of milton friedman every single time <laughs> we can uh have an opportunity to do so um i mean second city back in the day had like funny songs about milton friedman and and i oh, think right. you know because our starts were at the university of chicago so of course that is a a figure who looms large but but let's yeah, start yeah. with Okra being something mm. that was brought to the U.S. and the rest of the Americas uh, by enslaved Africans. And I Excellent. actually didn't know that the, the term came from uh, Igbo in Nigeria. Mm-hmm. So That's that was right, interesting. Yeah. yeah, and also the gumbo is uh, the, from an uh, African language. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, the gumbo is, uh, the, I think it's uh, the, one of those uh, Bantu languages that, uh, I mean, an African word for the, the okra. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, the enslaved Africans uh, brought the, the things like okra the, from Africa. And, yeah, I mean, the, without the, those uh, enslaved Americans, I mean, the U.S. would not have become a major the economic superpower. First of all, they initially provided, you know, the free labor that well, the uh, labor. Yep. yeah well the free that uh, uh, yeah. the price mm-hmm. uh not not that uh, for the providers yeah so uh, unpaid they, labor they, yeah that's right yeah the, they the provided uh unpaid labor the, the, to the uh southern landowners and yeah that throughout the 19th century the the two main the slave crops uh, the cotton and tobacco accounted for at least uh, one-third of U.S. export. And in the 1830s, uh, they accounted for uh, o- over two-thirds of uh, the U.S. Uh, export, which means that without those uh, the crops, uh, the, the U.S. would not have been able to import uh, all those uh, machines and technologies uh, from uh, then the more advanced uh, European countries, which would have slowed down the U.S. economic progress enormously. And also the, the slaves uh, the, uh, provided the, the, the capital as well in the sense that, you know, in those days, uh, the land was uh, quite uh, cheap in the U.S. because uh, the, 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 it was uh, plentiful. Mm-hmm. It was uh, labor, which was uh, in short supply. And uh, the, therefore, a lot of uh, loans were made uh, by the using slaves rather than land uh, as collateral. And then the, the, those uh, the, the loans were packaged into what uh, the, we these days call asset-backed 
uh, securities and sold to financial investors uh, from uh, Britain and other European countries. You know. And uh, the, to the capital, the, the U.S. Uh, became uh, geographically what it is uh, today only because of uh, enslaved uh, Africans, although these were not uh, those uh, Africans in the U.S. Uh, these were the slaves uh, from uh, uh, in, in Haiti, which uh, then uh, was called Saint-Domingue, uh, a French colony. And they had a uh, revolt against uh, the, the French uh, the colonizers and uh, expelled them. And that uh, put uh, Napoleon, the then the, the ruler of uh, the France, off uh, the, his uh, American positions. So when the, the James Monroe, the, the, the uh, later president, but uh, at the time uh, state secretary under Thomas Jefferson, went to Paris uh, to buy the, the port of New Orleans and a bit of hinterland, he was uh, offered the whole thing, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the French position in North America, which was then called Louisiana, which uh, basically is uh, the middle third of uh, the, uh, what is the uh, United States today because uh, Napoleon decided that he was uh, disengaging from North America. And yeah, this was a time when uh, there was no email, you know, the, not even telegraph. So apparently the Monroe was uh, holed up with uh, the then the, the American ambassador to France uh, the, for a couple of days uh, the, agonizing over where, whether he should uh, buy the whole thing and he uh, indeed uh, the, the decided to do, do that which is uh, now called the, the Louisiana Purchase and uh, when the, the Monroe came back uh, to the US apparently Jefferson uh, flew into a rage saying uh, you idiot I told you to buy the port uh, not the whole thing yeah? mm-hmm. why, why did you buy this uh, useless land yeah? but the irony is that uh, later this uh, useless land, uh, so-called, that uh, turned out to be the uh, breadbasket of the United States. And then the, 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 even for the Europe, uh, because uh, the, in the late 19th century, the, 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 they started exporting the, the wheat uh, to European market. Uh, and then also the, this uh, the Louisiana Purchase uh, gave uh, the U.S. Uh, the springboard uh, to reach the Pacific because later they uh, the, bought uh, the northern half of uh, the, the, what was uh, the, on the west of uh, Louisiana uh, from the British uh, in Oregon Purchase uh, and uh, the, took uh, the southern half of it uh, from the Mexicans after the, they the beat the Mexicans in the war uh, in the late uh, 19th century. So, yeah, there we go. I mean, uh, without that uh, slave revolt uh, in the Haiti, the U.S. would have been, you know, three separate countries, yeah, English right. speaking in the East, no uh, French speaking in the Middle, yeah, uh, the, the Part uh, the, the Mexico, the, the part uh, the Canada the, in the West, yeah, they uh, they they would be the uh, they would be the, the global superpower the, called the United States of America. It would have been a pretty big and prosperous country, but you know nothing like uh, what you have today. 
Yeah. So, so what, what's so interesting is, is um, we had my dear friend Dolly Chug on the program from the uh, uh, NY Stern School of Business. Um, and her book, A More Just Future, is about, you know, she loves this country. Her, her, she's an immigrant. Her parents were immigrants mm-hmm. to this land. Um, and part of the idea of loving your country is also being honest about where, where you come from and where this country was. And so sure. this particular story just sort of points out that, you know, th- this idea of unpaid labor, creating social capital, um, the the uh, the grabbing of land. We haven't even talked about wiping out the indigenous Indian. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. So that's that. But and this unpaid labor thing continues beyond those particular slaves from Africa and Haiti and, and elsewhere into mm. you know Chinese Americans in terms of building the railroad. All of Absolutely. this yeah. is our origin story, and it's yeah. not. And 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 you know, and this is the. I think this is the fight that exists. A big fight that exists in our country today is. Mm those politicians and the people who follow them who just don't want to admit it. That's right. Um, and, and in so doing, like, I get it. I understand why that feels bad. But mm-hmm. if you, if you don't understand where you come from, yeah. you have no way of going into the future in a way that can be successful for you or anyone else. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's sort of like that idea of like, yeah. if the thing's broken and you refuse to look at like how it got broken, it mm-hmm. will just continue to be broken. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, that, uh, you know, that, that the first uh, part of my book uh, is uh, called uh, Overcoming Prejudices. Mm-hmm. And there are so many uh, kind of racial stereotypes, cultural st- stereotypes. I mean, that uh, myth about your own history, you know, uh, myth about that uh, your relationship with other people, you know, the, all, all of these uh, need to be uh, looked at and uh, acknowledged. Yeah. And are you a, are uh, you a British citizen now, Ajahn? No, no, I'm past no. that. Uh, still a Korean citizen. Yeah. But you, but you so, live in Brit- You live in the UK, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I've uh, lived in Britain uh, for 37 years. Although at the moment I'm speaking from Korea. Yeah. Okay. It, yeah, it's fun. So one of my favorite podcasts I listen to is a um, two World War II buffs. One's a historian, one's a comic. It's called We Have Ways of Making You Talk. And oh, yeah. um, I've been listening to it from the very first episode, which happened right before the COVID hit. And, and I'm work, working my thre- mm. way through. And one of the things that's so fascinating to hear a British perspective of World War II, mm. uh, because, you know, in America, you don't think about the fact that this empire, like the Navy, right? I mean, yeah. this is in terms of modern history, there was nothing like that. So when yeah. you talk about the Lyme uh, mm-hmm. in, in later chapters, it's very much yeah. that of like, okay, this That's is right. how this was so important to Britain then extending this unbelievable reach that oh, really yeah, yeah. The doesn't biggest, even exist. Uh, could never exist today. Yeah. That's right, yeah. So the, the, the chapter on Lyme uh, starts with uh, the scurvy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, humans uh, cannot actually synthesize uh, vitamin C, unlike most other mammals. So uh, we have to uh, ingest it, and we can store vitamin C for at least uh, one month, uh, sometimes uh, three months. But beyond that, uh, if you uh, do not uh, keep uh, taking vitamin C in, yeah, I mean, uh, some form, 
you develop scurvy, which is uh, this horrible disease uh, that would, uh, uh, you know, swell your gums and joints mm-hmm. and your teeth will fall off and uh, you die. And yeah, so that in the very early days, uh, this was uh, not a problem because uh, the most people uh, didn't, uh, sorry, the most people that uh, didn't travel very far, right. but uh, when uh, these uh, long-distance uh, uh, sea voyages that uh, developed after the, you know, the, the uh, 15th century, this uh, became a major problem because if you are sailing on the sea for one month, uh, two months, uh, maybe a couple of years uh, even, then a lot of sailors will die of uh, the scurvy. So apparently that, uh, that in the 18th century, it was uh, customary to assume that uh, half the sailors will die that, uh, on any longer distance voyage. Eh? And, and that's uh, the, the cost of doing business at that point. That's right, yeah, exactly, and- yeah. But uh, the, the, the first country to have uh, solved this uh, the problem was uh, Britain because, you know, by the kind of uh, trial and error, the, uh, a lot of people figured out that the uh, Citrus uh, fruit is uh, the, uh, effective in uh, preventing scurvy, although they didn't know that uh, it was uh, vitamin C that was uh, doing that work. I mean, that was uh, that, uh, scientifically established only in the early 20th century. Uh, but uh, scurvy was so important in the finding of uh, vitamin C that uh, its uh, scientific name is anti-scurvic acid. Wow. Yeah, anti-scurvy acid, yeah. you know. Yeah. So that, uh, but uh, the success of uh, Britain was uh, with uh, the way that they made the sailors uh, the, the, uh, take uh, the vitamin C because uh, the, you know uh, what they did was uh, to mix uh, the, the lemon juice initially, but then the quickly the lime juice uh, because it was uh, so much cheaper. Mm. Uh, lime juice into the ration of rum uh, uh, given to the sailor. Yeah? Perfect. So, you know, it's a bit like uh, my book. Uh, you know, you give it with uh, alcohol, they'll drink it. Yeah? Okay, I, I give sure. economics with uh, <laughs> whose story people will uh, swallow it. Yeah? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. Uh, they uh, made this uh, change and uh, uh, almost uh, immediately wiped out uh, scurvy, which uh, other sailors are still... That, that, uh, suffering and that was a very important reason for british uh, naval dominance yeah? so much so that that uh, in america the, uh, a lot of people called uh, brits uh, the limeys yeah right? oh i actually never put that together oh yeah yeah, yeah. it comes from that yeah wow okay yeah so it was uh, initially term for british uh, sailors yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Were, okay yeah eating lime all the time but but uh, uh, now it's that uh, the general term for the british people now yeah? And then the economic idea in this chapter, too, is that we have a lot of limes right now that could help people that we are not, um, that ain't happening. So, exactly, so yeah. that that maybe if, you know, 500, you know, if half of our, 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 our fleet is going to be gone, and maybe this is actually interesting with COVID, right, in terms of mm-hmm. what, what we did and what we didn't do, but everything from driving cars yeah. You know, what, what we eat and what, what we put in, in mm. our bodies, um, you know, all of that. And this is a, this is about market incentives and, and, and again, about free markets and, and this idea that just because we say it's free, uh, sort of indicates to a lot of people that it means good. 
Um, and exactly, it's like, well, yeah. that's not always the case. And it's also not always the case that free means free. Yeah. Yeah. So the economic story in the, the Lime chapter is uh, about uh, climate change. You know, the, mm-hmm. the thing is that a lot of uh, the, the people think that uh, if you give uh, enough uh, the kind of uh, price signals in the market, uh, people will come up with uh, alternative energy technologies and uh, uh, change their consumption behavior and so on. But, uh, you know, this is uh, the, the not going to happen yeah? because uh, you need uh, an organized way of uh, the, the, the making this happen in the same way that a lot of other countries also knew about lime or lemon uh, in the terms of preventing scurvy, but uh, they didn't uh, organize themselves into doing it. Yeah? So, uh, for example, if you just uh, tell I mean, consumers that, uh, you know, that saving energy is uh, that, uh, good for your purse, you know, because uh, we are going to give you the price incentive, you know, people might do that, but then uh, that this is a, a very uh, complex uh, interrelated system, you know, that uh, you, if you want to change people's behavior, you actually need a real investment. You know, a lot of uh, Europeans find it easy to feel virtuous against the Americans because they, you know, uh, say, oh, I cycle 12 miles uh, each way every day to go to work and come back home. Look at those Americans driving around uh, like mad. But I tell them, okay, I mean, that, that, that if it's at uh, 12 miles that uh, you can uh, probably cycle, but what if it's 120 miles, you know? <laughs> I was, I was literally, like, I was at a concert last night in a suburb uh-huh. of Chicago, and the yeah. artist was like, how many people took public transportation? And no one said anything. And I literally yelled out, because we're in the suburbs. I mean, and, and, then, and then people yelled, we all walked, which was exactly. literally half, half of the people. Uh-huh. I'm like, yeah, it's different in terms of how just massive this sort of country is. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. So uh, if you want to that, uh, change uh, people's uh, that, uh, the driving behavior and so on in the U.S., uh, you need to reorganize the living space. You know, if you want to that, uh, change uh, that, uh, the way we do agriculture, we need to you know find uh, different ways of uh, feeding people and yeah. that, uh, introduce uh, different kinds of uh, culinary traditions that uh, rely more heavily on that that veg vegetarian things, you know. So that uh, all, all of these uh, the changes that we need uh, for uh, fighting climate change that, uh, from, you know, that developing alternative energy technologies, that uh, reorganizing the living space, that uh, introducing uh, the, the viable the public transport the system in areas where there's uh, none, you know, all of these uh, need uh, organization and uh, that story about the British Navy and uh, the, the, the supply of lime is that uh, really an interesting example of uh, how, you know, simply because that, uh, how it is wrong to believe that simply because there's something available, people will do it. Yeah? I, I didn't see this in the book and I, I might have missed it. So, uh, mm-hmm. but I'm curious what your opinion is around uh, something like choice architecture. So that also comes out of primarily the University, mm-hmm. University of Chicago. Richard Thaler wrote the book with Cass Sunstein. And the and, and so do you think that that is an element that could be in play or are you part of the group that there's a little bit of a backlash happening on that right now? Uh, yeah, no, I, I uh, think uh, it's, uh, I mean, uh, something that uh, could be useful under certain circumstances. But 
I think uh, the problem is that uh, so many of our problems need uh, more fundamental changes in the social relations, ownership structure. And, and it's not, uh, it, it, yeah. person by person is not going to do it. That's right, power balance. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I'm not totally against it. You know, the, there are some things that you can do to, you know, as uh, the, the term goes, uh, notch people into, you know, yeah. A better decision, but that uh, so many of our problems are not going to be solved by that kind of thing. You know, it's and funny. That, mm, Go ahead. Yeah, yeah and also that this idea that that uh, you know that these uh, individual choices uh, can that, that, that bring big changes hinges on the assumption that uh, individuals have actually time to process all the information given to them. Yeah? Uh, so, time, power, uh, access. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so the, ideally, the, you know, the, the, if you believed in individual choices, ideally you would the, provide them with all the information about, I don't know, a packet of uh, the, the, the potato chips uh, that you buy or a uh, packet of, uh, the, sorry, the, the, uh, the, the serving of uh, the fast food that, uh, uh, people buy, but uh, who has the time to read all the labels? You know, the, think about uh, what they right. eat, and right. you know, we we don't have uh, that kind of uh, processing power. Yeah? No, and 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 I think about this just in my own. You know, we're empty nesters now, and and mm-hmm. the fact is, when you're young parents and you've got more than one kid, you know, you're. I'd like throwing some chicken nuggets that you're heating up or whatever is like mm-hmm. kind of what you have to do in terms of just making it through to get to bedtime, so that you can exactly, you know. Yeah you make it through the next day. And That's now, right. of course, as we're getting older, my wife and I are, we eat fish. We, mm-hmm. we pack our lunches. We're so much mm-hmm. better about it, but cognitively we have freed up. Cognitively we freed up space. Physically we, we have more space. We have more time. Absolutely. Our jobs are a lot different. Yeah. And that is just, I mean, that, you know, th- that, that didn't occur for the bulk of, of that period. So. exactly, it, yeah. yeah, that's right. So the, the kind of, informed choices uh, that, that uh, we ideally uh, like everyone to, to make. Uh, that's a pipe dream for the majority of people. You know, either they are too knackered that, uh, with their work or the childcare, you know, that they don't have money, they are stressed out, you know, they, they, they don't have uh, the, the right amount of information, they don't have the Kind of uh, political power to say no to the certain kind of uh, the social structure, you know. So I think uh, that uh, all this uh, the emphasis on individual choices are all uh, very well, but uh, that there are very few people who can actually uh, meaningfully make uh, that kind of choices because uh, they don't have the, the, the resources and the mental space and time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I wish we had the rest of the day to talk. We don't. Mm. Uh, uh, but I want to encourage people to buy this book because y- if you read the chapter on Rye, you're going to learn that Otto Van Bismarck started the first welfare state. That's good. Uh, and then if you shop at Banana Republic, you will be ashamed of yourself when you read the <laughs> section on bananas. Um, but, uh, Hajun, we always end the podcast asking our guests for a yes and story. Do you, do you have yeah. one for us? Yes. Uh, I guess that uh, mine has to be when the, one of my uh, teachers in the, the graduate school in the Cambridge asked me to apply for this job uh, that uh, came up in my field. 
And yeah, at that time, I hadn't even finished my PhD, and uh, I uh, well, was that that uh, well, at least I thought I was not qualified. Hmm. And then, yeah, my teacher also said, yeah, I mean, it's a bit of a long shot that uh, you still haven't finished your PhD, and yeah, but that uh, you know, as a uh, luck would have it, that uh, one candidate which who. I mean, I don't know who it was, but uh, who apparently was that that, that kind of uh, better qualified than I, for some reason, didn't turn up for the interview. Mm. And yeah, I got the job. But uh, so, <laughs> you know, the, 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 I mean, especially at the time I uh, had uh, kind of grown up in Korea where you are supposed to kind of uh, be modest and uh, yeah. humble all the yeah. time. And, and I, I that, uh, at the time thought that uh, it would be actually quite yeah, uh, kind of immodest that uh, mm-hmm. even to apply for the job. But somehow I that, uh, that did and yeah, that, uh, that's how I, how I ended up uh, teaching in Cambridge uh, for 32 years and, until uh, I, I moved to the, the London the last year. I, lo- I love, I don't know that we've had a yes and, which is uh, potentially a breach of etiquette, uh, but, but, but I love it because it is, sometimes it is about like, you look, I, I know it's maybe not supposed to happen this way, but what, what if we take that chance? That's and, right, yeah. you know, what if we take that leap? Uh, the book is called Edible Economics. A Hungry Economist Explains the World. Hajun Chang, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. Getting the Yes Hand is produced by Second City Works and WGN Radio. Our editor is Ben Anderson from WGN, and we get support at the Second City from Colleen Fahey, Mike Farinaccio, and Emma Smith. The music you hear at the beginning and end of the show is by Jukebox the Ghost. For more information about the Second City, you can go to www.secondcity.com, or you can email us directly at works at secondcity.com.
rest of your life from adulthood. No one survives.